Hey, good afternoon, friends. Happy Tuesday. Welcome aboard. Rob Breckenridge with you. This is Afternoons on QR Calgary. We've got a lot to get to on the program today. There was a lot happening today. We've got new inflation numbers out today. Things going in the wrong direction. Inflation for the month of August coming in at 4% year over year. Uh, that's up from the month before. We'll talk more about that coming up later on this afternoon. We'll certainly talk more on the fallout from uh, yesterday's shocking announcement in the House of Commons by the Prime Minister yesterday uh, that there was intelligence pointing to an involvement by India's government in a murder, an assassination that occurred in Surrey, B.C. back in June. Much more to get to on that front today. We've got an update coming later on this afternoon regarding the E. coli outbreak here in Calgary. The health minister, uh, the chief medical officer of health, will be holding a press conference. We'll have the latest on that as well. So all of that straight ahead. Your phone calls, of course, here, 403-974-8255. Now, in the inflation data today, we see some signs that uh, food inflation which has been running pretty hot, uh, well above the uh, inflation rate in recent months, that is starting to ease, or at least starting to decelerate. 6.8% was that number in August, and that's actually down. So is it possible then that food inflation is starting to ease? That's been a sudden focus of this federal government, of course. Yesterday, they had the five CEOs from the big grocery store chains in Ottawa for a meeting. Some expectation here from the federal government that something be done to stabilize prices. This was Industry Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne this morning commenting on what came out of that meeting. Everything is on the table, but yesterday was a step in the right direction. Uh, we summoned the executives to Ottawa. Uh, they came. I think it was a first in Canada, that's what I'm told. And secondly, what matters is that they committed, not only to the government of Canada, but to Canadians who are watching, uh, to bring meaningful action by Thanksgiving to stabilize prices in Canada. So, you know, this is step one. There's a lot of work. You know, no one pretends it's easy. I was in touch with my uh, counterparts in Europe this morning. We're going to look at what we can do because we know that this is the first step. The second step is to go after the large manufacturer. And that maybe we need international cooperation, you know. Uh, so we're going to be talking to our UK friends. Uh, we're in touch with our French colleagues. And, you know, we're resolving and, and pushing the envelope together. The, the point is that Canadians asked me to fight for them. I'm bringing the fight. Okay, well, look, it, it just, it's not clear what it means by going after the big manufacturers, as the minister suggests. And it's not exactly clear what it is they expect or Canadians should expect groceries, uh, grocery stores to do following this meeting yesterday. Well, somebody who's been following this issue, and in fact, somebody who was on hand yesterday for that meeting in the nation's capital is Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, professor and director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Sylvain, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. So you were there as an observer, like we say. So what, what were your impressions of this meeting, first of all? Well, I mean, I, I thought at the very beginning it was a little awkward, <laughs> to be yeah. honest with you. You know, seeing the big five in the same room at the same time, it's, uh, it's never been done before. Uh, so, and you have, you have the Minister of Ag sharing with the Minister of Innovation. So his tone is, and approach is very different, uh, to say the least. Consumers are very much at the center of all discussions and innovation, whereas in ag, farm gate issues are much more predominant. So the language uh, issues were, were dealt with very differently. But uh, I was asked to speak first and uh, for about 15 minutes and uh, did, did state that uh, that uh, we failed to see any evidence of profiteering and 
basically presented facts uh, as to why uh, we believe that there is no evidence of profiteering. And I could feel in the room that things uh, eased up a little bit. Uh, I think that CEOs thought that they were coming into a uh, finger-pointing session. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the case. Uh, and the reason why I did that is to pivot things so everyone in the room can focus more on solutions for for the minister. And uh, I, I think I was successful doing that. However, of course, I did uh, talk about the big elephant in the room, which is consumer trust. doesn't matter how much evidence uh, there is out there suggesting that there is no profiteering. People will believe what they want to believe based on emotions. 82% of Canadians actually think that there is profiteering going on. Right. So that asked them to deal with. Well, and it's interesting because you didn't have these numbers yesterday, but we see them this morning. So the food inflation rate has, has slowed 6.8% in August, as you know, the lowest since February of 2022. The gap between overall inflation and food inflation has narrowed as well, the lowest since August of 2022. On food prices, uh, Sylvain, is, is the tide starting to turn already? That's right. Actually, I did say that yesterday to CEOs that we were anticipating August numbers to be much more... Uh, well, friendlier to mm -hmm. Canadians, uh, if you will, the uh, food inflation rate is at its lowest uh, level since February 2022. And you just mentioned that the gap has narrowed significantly between the general inflation rate and food inflation. So those are things that are actually going to help. Uh, and in fact, I do believe that markets themselves uh, are taking care of food, our food inflation issue already. And so... But I, I think uh, Ottawa's ambitions are much more uh, uh, acute, I guess. Uh, and uh, Mr. Champagne wants action as soon as possible. Well, I'm curious, too. I mean, was there any conversation about steps Ottawa could take? I mean, the federal government has a lot of levers to pull when it comes to taxes, regulations, marketing boards. There's a long list of things the federal government could do. But was this all about the grocers and not the government? Well, in my presentation, I did talk about the snack tax, uh, the carbon tax, uh, supply management. Uh, but, of course, in the room, you had the big five. So, of course, we could only talk about things that they can control. But, of course, I wanted to signal to the, to, uh, the minister that there are things that are actually – there are policies that are actually making our food more expensive. And some, some of these policies are quite invisible to grocery shoppers. Uh, the snack tax is really the obvious one. Oh, last week, Prime Minister Trudeau decided to eliminate the GST uh, for new builds. Well, why not look at food systems of food distribution? If you, uh, if you buy a snack at the grocery store, uh, you will be taxed on it. And because of shrinkflation, uh, there are more and more products that are now subject to uh, this snack tax if it's reduced so significantly. And that's something that... that the government can actually change overnight. So I did invite the minister to think about some of these things, but I'm not entirely sure there's any appetite for that. No pun. Yeah, you're right. So in terms of what the grocers can do, I mean, it would be a bad look if they all did the same thing at the same time. I mean, that kind of flies in the face of the competition we want, but there's sort of an expectation here that they all do something. What, what are the possible options on their side? Well, that's, that's where things get a little bit complicated. So Mr. Champagne's experience is very much about telecoms. 
and telecoms are telecoms. But in the grocery business, you had five companies that are actually quite different from one another. I mean, Costco, Walmart are American-owned. Uh, Costco's model is, is really, I mean, Costco is a wholesaler, really, when you look at it. And Walmart is a gigantic logistical genius. Uh, it's, it's the largest private employer in the world. And so, and then you have the traditionals, Metro, Empire, and Loblaws. And again, they're very different. Loblaws is very corporate, whereas Metro and Sobe's, they have many independent stores within their network. And a very and and weaker private labels, Loblaws uh, has way more control on the market when it comes to house uh, house brands with their private labels, uh, no name and, and president's choice. So, uh, I think the minister intends to have chats one on one with uh, all of these companies and with manufacturers as well. So, as as uh, Mr. Champagne's tone continues, uh, which seems to be quite aggressive. Uh, he also wants to learn, uh, and uh, that's why I've been involved with uh, with this since July, I guess. And uh, but I did I did explain to Mr. Champagne that following Europe's footstep in freezing prices may not be ideal for Canada. I did say that many times, actually. Mm-hmm. Well, and speaking of manufacturers, and and you know the, we heard the minister say that again today. He wants to go after the manufacturers. But who is he referring to? What do we mean when we talk about manufacturers in this context? Uh, CPGs mainly, I think. Uh, so consumer products. Uh, so the big the big players like Nestle, for example, okay. Mondelez, uh, Unilever, Procter Gamble's. I, I think he's aiming because. SMEs, small, medium-sized businesses, uh, just don't have the capacity to to pivot. The last thing you want to do is to penalize grocers in any way uh, so they can turn around and put more pressure on manufacturing without talking to them. Right. And, and a windfall tax, again, <laughs> a windfall tax in, in, in the grocery business would, would not necessarily be a good idea because with very small margins, uh, guess who would be paying for that tax eventually? Yeah, exactly. You and I. Yep. Well, we'll see what happens over the next few weeks. So an interesting day yesterday. We'll leave it there for now, Sylvan. Appreciate the insight. Uh, thanks so much for joining us here. Take care. All Bye. the best. You too. Dr. Sylvan Charlebois, uh, professor and director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, was on hand uh, for this meeting, the summit, whatever we want to call it, yesterday, and, and offered his two cents. And that's good. I mean, I think it's important to point out that, look, there's no evidence that there's greed and profiteering going on here. And yes, by the way, uh, government, there is uh, there are things you could do on your side. You're really interested in making a difference. So we'll see what comes out of all of this. Uh, I think, you know, the the grocers are trying to walk a fine line here, recognizing that this is all political theater to some degree, but also realizing that, uh, you know, if the government is hell-bent on on punishing them or taxing them or regulating them in some other way, they can do it. So you do want to tread lightly. Look, I think, you know, Sylvan's absolutely right. Uh, a, A tax on grocers is going to be a tax on consumers. Like, there's no getting around that. Like, it's impossible to see how taxing grocers would result in lower prices. But the good news is, as he says, there are some signs that things are going in the right direction. In fact, there was a piece today from uh, economist Trevor Toome up at thehub.ca uh, pointing to a couple of interesting notes on, on this front. Now, first of all, as he points out, 
you know, the, the profit margins are really not a factor here. So food and beverage retailers in Canada earned roughly 4.2 cents in profit per dollar sold in the second quarter of this year. Now, that's up from 3.7 cents a year earlier. But this contributed only about 0.5 percentage points to the 9.1 percent food price increase between the second quarters of 2022 and 23. That's not zero, but it's close. Even over a longer period, changing markups account for little. Since early 2020, grocery prices have risen by 21 percent. If those markups had stayed the same or those profit margins had stayed the same, they'd be up by 20 percent. So we're talking about a difference between a 21 percent increase and a 20 percent increase. That's not where this is coming from. But on the good news side, there's good news for consumers here. The cost of many important farm inputs has fallen recently. Machinery fuel is down 27%. Fertilizer is down nearly 17%. This is already showing up in the price of many important farm products. Price of grains is down 8% so far this year, for example. So we've already seen a big drop in the farm, price, uh, the farm product price index. Historically, grocery price movements lag those drops about roughly six months. If this pattern continues, we should soon see a sharper drop in grocery prices. By December, if this were to hold, average grocery prices could possibly be even lower than they were a year ago. And as he notes, the government will naturally claim credit. Oh, sure they will. But it's important to note where we're starting to see some shift here. It has nothing to do with anything the government is doing. Anyway, like I say, that's one part of the inflation picture. There are some concerning numbers we see today in the StatsCan data. Inflation up year over year in August, a rate of 4%. Things going in the wrong direction. And even some of those core inflation numbers that the Bank of Canada looks at, those are going in the wrong direction. So we'll talk more about that on the program this afternoon. As you would imagine, that dominated question period uh, here this afternoon. Some comments earlier as well from the Conservative leader on inflation. We'll talk much more about that today. More followed on the India allegations yesterday. We're getting an E. coli update from the province today. So plenty to get to. Your phone calls, your texts here today, 403-974-8255. My name is Rob Breckenridge. This is Afternoons on QR Calgary. Over the past year, we've demonstrated that we were able to bring down inflation from the highs of 8.1%, while at the same time being there to invest in Canadians. Well, that was the Prime Minister in the House of Commons today. Met with some laughter from the opposition side, but that's, I think, the extent of their spin on these inflation numbers today. It's not a pretty picture. So, yeah, I guess it's true that 4% inflation, it's down from the heights of, of 8%. I guess when you're looking at inflation and year-over-year increases, uh, you know, that's kind of 8 plus 4 in a way, if you want to look at uh, how things have added up over the last couple of years. But, yeah, I mean, we're seeing uh, a, a backslide here. Things going in the wrong direction. The year-over-year uh, -year increase in the consumer price index, as mentioned, 4% in August. It was at 3.3% in July. Uh, so I think there was some expectation it would be uh, above 3.3 for August, but uh, 4%, I, I get the sense maybe did still come as a bit of a surprise. What's worrying is when you look at the uh, the core measures of inflation that the bank watches closely, those are up too. Now, again, a lot of this is being driven by energy costs, gasoline prices, etc. Um, but there is more going on here. So it's showing how stubborn and persistent inflation is proving to be. The Bank of Canada has done a lot in terms of monetary policy to try to counter that, enough so that we're seeing a slowing of the economy. 
So it leaves the bank with a bit of a dilemma, I guess, as we approach their next rate decision. What to do here? So what do we make of these numbers? What it all means? Joining us to unpack it further, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Douglas Porter, chief economist at BMO. Doug, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, so in terms of the level of surprise here, like uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being complete shock, I mean, where, where you were you at this morning? Oh, I would say about a 5. Yeah, okay. Uh, you know, and look, we were we were looking for 3.9% inflation. The consensus was 3.8. There were some people who had uh, 4 uh, penciled in. So it, it's not a big shock. And, and mm-hmm. look, uh, to be clear, gasoline prices are something, of course, we can you know, follow on a, on a minute-by-minute basis. So there's oh, yeah. zero surprise in the, in the gasoline front. Uh, as you said earlier, there, there, was, there was some surprise on, on other prices, on, on so-called core inflation. And, and by the way, there was actually a little bit of good news on grocery prices. They actually right. did dip a little bit in, in the month. The, uh, the, hey, look, they're still up almost 7% from a year ago. Um, but they are starting to stabilize, it looks like. So there's a, a shred of good news there on, on grocery prices. The, the problem, you, you talked about gasoline prices. That, that's a more recent problem again. Um, but shelter is, is really proving uh, to, to be an issue here. And it's, it's not just, you know, everybody's favorite uh, problem child, uh, mortgage interest costs. That's, that's a big part of it. Rent is, uh, is, is a very serious issue in, in a number of provinces, uh, up 6.5%. That's one of the biggest rent increases we've, we've seen in decades. Right, because I get the sense that the Bank of Canada is not too focused on gasoline prices. You know, the, the extent to which gasoline prices were helping bring down inflation this year, I don't think the bank got too carried away with that. And, and maybe looking at these numbers here, maybe not getting too carried away with the impact that the gas prices are having the other way. But it's some of these other measures, the core inflation measures, that, that probably has the more concern. Uh, uh, that's completely right. And and actually, I'm going to defend gas gasoline prices here. It's... If you take gasoline prices out of it, inflation was actually a little bit higher. Oh, yeah. It, uh, okay. it, it, it's actually 4.1. As the, the statistics can calculates in all items excluding gasoline, it was 4.1%. Uh, so gas, gas has changed from being something, as you, as you said, was moderating inflation and now, you know, really being neither here nor there. It's, it's, it's really no longer helping. Um, but, yeah, they're, they're worried about, uh, they, and they're going to look through that. They, they will not move interest rates on, you know, a, a couple months increase in, in gasoline prices. Mm-hmm. What they would be worried about is if, you know, they're seeing signs that other areas just are not letting go. And, and that's where I'm a bit concerned. Like, you know, the bank has its own, uh, the bank Canada has its own favorite measures of core inflation. Uh, basically, most of them ticked up. In, in this month. So one of them moved a little bit above 4%, one was just a little bit below 4%, but they, even the, the so-called underlying measures of inflation are, are right there, right around 4%. That's, that's too high. Um, you know, the bank, first of all, they target 2%. Inflation, they can tolerate things between 1% to 3 but 4 is it's too high for them. Now, mortgage uh, interest payments do become a factor in all of this, and that, that's a consequence of this monetary policy. So how does the bank factor that in once mortgage interest rates and those changes are start to starting to be a measurable factor in all of this? How does the bank separate all that out? Yeah, and of course, this is one area where they're, you know, they're really being heavily criticized by, by many right. uh, people that they're, they're actually... You know, if you look at uh, statistically, they're actually causing some of this inflation by uh, by raising interest rates because it does lead into mortgage interest uh, costs. The one the one thing I would point out is, first of all, that that's actually a very small mm-hmm. uh, portion of the overall index. It, it it is playing a role though, but uh, 
there's also a measure of overall inflation excluding those mortgage interest costs and and it's it's running a little bit above three percent as as well which again is is a bit too high what what the bank of canada would say though in direct you know in, in on, on that question of whether they're causing inflation, I think what they would say is, well, where would some of these other prices be had we not raised interest rates? Like, where would home prices be? Where would yeah. uh, new home prices? Where where would furniture prices be, or or clothing prices, or uh, you know, uh, appliance prices? And and I think their argument would be is, look, the interest rate increases have actually cooled demand for a lot of these things, a lot of the big ticket purchases. It's actually reduced inflation in in many of these areas and just to pick one example furniture prices are now actually down uh from where they were a year ago uh new home prices are are basically pretty much unchanged whereas they were rising very quickly before Mm -hmm. and so they would they would argue that in in other areas of the economy they actually are um you know it it is starting to work uh we we are seeing somewhat lower uh, price pressures in in other areas uh, and we've got a softening economy too, and and you know that that's a big part of the bank's consideration, right? Is how much you know what can the economy handle uh, another rate hike? But I mean, I you know should we start to get worried here about, I guess the hard landing as opposed to the soft landing that we're, we've got persistent inflation and we've got a slowing economy? Yeah, it definitely raises the risk of uh, of, of of a less friendly outcome uh, for uh, for the economy. The fact that inflation is is proving to be sticky. You know, it, it means that the Bank of Canada might have to do more, which raises the risks of of a harder landing for for growth. And and as as you mentioned, you know, we've we've already seen the economy struggling a bit recently. You know, we 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 had a small decline in the in the second quarter. Now there were special factors there. Uh, you know, the, some of the forest fires and the and the civil servant strike in in that quarter. Um, but but even even looking past that, it, the economy is struggling to grow. We've we've seen the unemployment rate rise. You know, got as low as 4.9% last summer, and now it's 5.5%. Not a huge move, but it's not going in the right direction. And this is something the bank will take into account. Um, they're, they're, they, I, I, I think the bar for them raising interest rates is pretty high. Like, it'll take more than one bad inflation number like we saw today. Um, if, if, there, if there's a sign, though, that the economy is starting to pick back up again, then, then I think that raises the risk that they might feel that, yeah, it does it. We, we do need to hike interest rates again. Right. So we're maybe getting into 50-50 territory, but I, I get the sense maybe that for now, when we look a few weeks out here, the October rate decision, that, that it's probably still on the side of hold the line for now? That's that's the way we see it. Even the financial markets that you know are starting to lean to the greater possibility of, of another interest rate hike, even the, the markets don't have you know, a, a hike fully priced in for, or even half priced in for the October meeting. Uh, we will get another inflation report before the bank next decides on interest rates. We're going to have a jobs report. We're going to have a, a GDP report. So they'll have lots of information to, to chew on before they have to make that decision. And, you know, and, and at that point, they might decide they don't have quite enough information. They can punt it to, you know, to their next meeting uh, later later on in early early December. So, you know, there, there's there's no rush on, on the bank again this uh, part. As, as as I said at the at the outset, this this result, while it's a bit disappointing, wasn't a huge surprise. Right. So there's nothing that the bank has to you know automatically respond to here. We'll find out in due course much more. Uh, Economics.bmo.com. Douglas, thanks for the insight. Appreciate your time here this afternoon. Well, thanks again for having me. 
We knew from the start that Indian agencies were behind this assassination and a lot more, but it was incredibly validating. I mean, there's been a lot of gaslighting that's happened. India has been interfering with and engaging in espionage in Canada against the Sikh community for decades, but it's always seemed like conspiracy theories. Uh, no one actually used to believe it. You know, could, it, could India, the so-called largest democracy, actually be doing these sort of things? But to have the prime minister stand up and, and actually tell this to Canadians, uh, that's very significant. Uh, that was uh, Balpreet Singh with the World Sikh Organization uh, speaking with our colleagues earlier today at uh, AM640 Radio in Toronto that they really weren't surprised by what we heard yesterday. But it was still, I, I think, shocking to most Canadians. The idea that uh, another country, one that's ostensibly, uh, to some extent anyway, an ally, would uh, target and murder a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil. But that's in fact what the Prime Minister alleged yesterday, that there's intelligence pointing to an Indian connection to a murder that occurred in Surrey in June. A prominent uh, Sikh leader, a prominent Sikh separatist, uh, who was involved, for example, in a recent uh, referendum uh, amongst the Sikh community in Canada on the question of whether there should be a separate uh, state known as uh, Khalistan. Now, it's it's moot and irrelevant in, in any kind of legal context as far as India's borders are concerned. Um, but it certainly speaks, I think, to, to the movement that exists here and, and one that has been a, a source of frustration for India. And to be sure, going back to the Air India bombing, there have been elements uh, of that separatist movement in Canada that have crossed the line into not being just not just militants, but uh, outright terrorism. Uh, but I think there were those that simply hold to political views uh, about India's borders or how Sikhs are treated by India's government uh, that certainly don't fall into the camp of, of militant or terrorists. And, and maybe India has been guilty uh, of lumping all of those people into that same category. So this has all been a challenge for Canada's intelligence agencies, both in terms of trying to monitor uh, the degree to which Sikh extremism uh, still exists here. And there are groups that, that are, are banned organizations and that's part of CSIS's mandate. But certainly when it comes to foreign interference, that's something that CSIS needs to focus on too. Something that CSIS is trying to focus on, as we've learned through some of the revelations about China, uh, sometimes uh, CSIS runs into a political wall when it comes to this issue, trying to call attention uh, to what they're seeing and not seeing action from the politicians. Well, as related to this announcement yesterday, there's a new revelation today, a new scoop from uh, investigative journalist Sam Cooper that I think is very relevant to all of this. The extent to which CSIS was aware of India's intelligence uh, agency setting up networks here, the warnings that CSIS provided about all of that, and the steps that CSIS wanted to take, but steps that were blocked by the federal government. Now, this goes back to the lead up of what turned out to be a pretty disastrous trip to India for Justin Trudeau in 2018. Uh, but this is all outlined in a document uh, that Sam Cooper was able to see. Uh, and he writes about it at his website, thebureau.news. Joining us on the line this afternoon is uh, award-winning investigative journalist and best-selling author Sam Cooper. Sam, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Rob. So in the context of what we learned yesterday and what the prime minister uh, disclosed to Canadians, looking back on what's been going on over the, the past few years, for, first of all, what do you see as, as the possible connection here? Well, um, first of all, uh, it, it was a, a shocking disclosure for this prime minister who in a way has been somewhat pushing back on some of the allegations of deep interference, really uh, targeting his own party from China. Mm -hmm. And in this case, right after a very unsuccessful, trip to India, 
he dropped this disclosure that uh, we already knew there were suggestions, even allegations, that this killing in Surrey, B.C. this summer could have had nefarious links to hostile state activity. But for Mr. Trudeau to, to drop the allegations like that stunned, I would say, all political watchers, uh, probably other foreign leaders. Yeah. And so the, the connections here could be, look, I know from my uh, police and intelligence sources that it's no secret that the Air India bombing had a huge impact both on uh, relations between India and Canada and foreign interference activity in Canada. India believes that Canada isn't cracking down on some very extreme leaders who are targeting India with uh, nefarious activities. Uh, there are allegations of weapon smuggling, connections to crime. And so India classified this man in Vancouver a terrorist after the killing. Now we have this allegation that somehow Indian networks could be involved. Now what my investigation brings into this I have been probing this summer a document I obtained from uh, Canada's National Security Parliamentarian's review body filed in 2019 to our Prime Minister. It's on foreign interference, and in a nutshell, it says China, India, and Russia are deeply targeting Canada. All of their methods include targeting diaspora communities. And uh, furthermore, I've already reported, uh, Trudeau's government has not acted on CSIS's repeated warnings to counter with an all-of-government effort because Canada values trade and diplomatic ties, specifically with China and India. So to jump to the revelations of this story, uh, the document also says... Uh, uh, CSIS wanted to crack down on what it saw as growing Indian intelligence uh, interference, specifically targeting the Sikh community in Vancouver through a diplomat stationed in the consulate, India's consulate in Vancouver. And this operation, which is called a threat reduction measure, was gutted, completely abandoned because other agencies, including uh, Global Affairs Canada, the Privy Council Office, told CSIS this would be too politically sensitive. It appears they weren't even sure that they liked the threat measure law, which was brought in by the Harper government. And another thing, as we know, Prime Minister Trudeau was planning to travel to India, right. so Global Affairs Canada did not even tell the Indian government that CSIS had these deep concerns about activity run out of its consulate targeting Sikh community in Vancouver. Well, and, and, you know, the politics of all of this are fascinating on both sides because the Trudeau government has been accused of looking the other way, maybe on, on Sikh extremism because of politics and the diaspora community uh, and wanting those votes. But at the same time, also not wanting to rock the boat with India and especially ahead of that trip. So here's CSIS, and I'm sure they're trying to keep on top of both sides of this, too. You know, the, the Sikh militant element and also what India might be running into. And they're getting caught up in, in these politics or running into political roadblocks. Absolutely. It's an extremely complex, uh, geopolitically impactful file. And you point to the balancing act right there. As we know, uh, you know, even back then, more so now, Canada was trying to increase trade ties with India. We know that uh, at the same time, Canada is trying to balance, you know, it's a deep sort of trade dependency on China with China's foreign interference. But I do think CSIS and RCMP's primary goal here would be simply uh, to protect Canadians that could mm -hmm. be targeted by a foreign government. And also, of course, they are very interested in looking into extremist networks. Uh, 
they would like to see CSIS wanted to work more closely with the Indian government to target some of these alleged extremists, which India, uh, you know, repeatedly says have nefarious ties to international crime. So when, when I boiled this down, you're right, it's an extremely complex file. Politics are all over it. But what we have here uh, that can't be disregarded is Canada's diaspora communities are are really under, you know, a great deal of interference from foreign governments. And uh, Canada doesn't have the requisite laws in place to get to the bottom of these issues. Or the political will. I mean, there's there's a common thread that runs through these foreign interference stories where intelligence officials uh, are identifying, you know, these these operations. They're trying to to get uh, officials in Ottawa to take all of this seriously. And I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of frustration that, uh, you know, despite their work, nothing's really coming of it. I would say that's absolutely the, the, the right assessment. Look, Rob, I, uh, I've said before, uh, about this time last year and prior to it, I started to get sensitive disclosures from Canadian officials who were deeply concerned that CSIS and other agencies had been warning Prime Minister Trudeau's government right to the top, directly briefing Prime Minister Trudeau, most specifically about China's deep interference, but also, you know, of course, Russia and India, the big three threats. And uh, my sourcing suggested, and the evidence, I believe, bears it out, that this government uh, turned a blind eye for many reasons. Again, trade, diplomacy being top reasons. The allegations and suggestions are also electoral success. Who are these people that are interfering in foreign governments that are, you know, providing uh, cash donations or, you know, political fundraising networks for uh, not only the Trudeau government, previous governments have been targeted, but my sources would suggest this government more than any. And that's the big concern uh, why, at least for me, uh, my public interest reports surfaced. And uh, here we are. Right. So th- this report, and you've seen this report, this is 2019. This is uh, NCI COP, as it, or NSI COP, as it's known, this this committee that's uh, set up involving parliamentarians that can review intelligence matters, reports to the prime minister. So 2019 draft report, and that includes some of this work being done by CSIS in 2016, 2017. So this did this did go to, to the prime minister, right? That's what this committee is mandated to do. Absolutely. This this committee was started by the prime minister to report to the prime minister. And as I've detailed in several exclusive reports for the bureau, the irony here is that uh, this bipartisan panel over and again is reporting directly to the prime minister. Look, you have been uh, you've had recommendations to get a foreign registry in place like Australia. You've been told that Australia had to overcome willful blindness in its elites to start to finally counter, especially Chinese foreign interference. I'll go further. You know, this NISCOP and a SICOP report says that uh, the CSIS Act should be potentially uh, amended, the Security and Information Act, which would allow the RCMP to, to finally do some of these foreign interference cases, should be amended. And look, the evidence can't be, uh, can't be countered. The Trudeau government has not listened to those recommendations from its own bipartisan panel. And here we are again this week. We see reports that uh, as Parliament was stood up again, there's nothing in uh, you know, opening speeches about you know, tabling a Foreign Agent Registration Act. One more point, Rob. That is the very act that has been used successfully by the U.S. government to prosecute these so-called uh, Chinese Communist Party police stations that are used to target the diasporas in that country and our country and all over the world. 
Well, and it may be the one question we're left with, too, here in, in relation to what we learned this week in this assassination that, that occurred uh, in, in June or this murder that occurred in June. Uh, if indeed there was a connection to, to India's government or Indian intelligence agencies, that if we knew about all of this and these networks uh, back as far as 2016, 2017, there was an opportunity to do something to disrupt all of this. And, and that was that didn't happen. The government shut that down. I mean, the question if more had been done then to disrupt those networks. Could this have been prevented now? That, that's the question uh, that I'm raising, and I want to be very careful. You know, these allegations, we don't have any further detail to them yet. And as I'm suggesting, you know, when we get into, uh, you know, murders, contract killings, right. the, the, the networks involved will involve, you know, will be very difficult to untangle. Obviously, organized crime, as I've said repeatedly, being used by China. The suggestion here is that these types of networks could be used by India, and by the way, India will say that the the uh, separatist networks in Canada are using those same actors. So uh, I do think it's a fair question. Look, if CSIS, their, their man, what they wanted to do in this campaign, and the document says very clearly, is roll back and disrupt these growing Indian intelligence networks in Vancouver, targeting the Sikh diaspora, the, the, and, the, and the campaign was blocked. So that raises the fair question. Could you know, alleged incidents like this have been countered. I've read reports that this this uh, individual that was murdered had received briefs that his life was in danger. So I think there's so much more to learn. But the questions that uh, are raised by my report are, are pretty serious. Oh, indeed. Very important story, as mentioned. Much more at thebureau.news. Sam, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Rob. Okay, there you go. That's uh, award-winning investigative journalist, best-selling author Sam Cooper. Another big scoop from Sam today. You can read it at thebureau.news. So it is interesting, the, the two sides of this that the government is trying to walk here. Some of the domestic politics when it comes to the diaspora community and to Sikh Canadians in particular, uh, and also trying to navigate that relationship with India. And maybe kind of falling flat on, on both counts here. Uh, that we haven't protected that community. We haven't fostered better relationships with India, and, and we've got a big mess on our hands now. But ultimately, look, this is a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil who was murdered. And if a foreign government had something to do with that, that's a big deal, right? This is, uh, you know, a pretty serious manifestation of what we would uh, consider to be foreign interference. And we have to take it seriously. <laughs> Uh, part of the inflation story, of course, the affordability story has been housing and uh, the struggle right across the country, including in Alberta's two biggest cities, to deal with housing costs. And there's a lot going on. And there's a role here where all three levels of government uh, are involved. But certainly, you know, a big factor that I think a lot of folks have been pointing to is the demand for housing. Supply isn't keeping up with the demand. Part of the reason why there is such strong and ongoing demand is because Canada is growing. There are more people here and more people coming here. So there is a link between immigration and the housing issue. Uh, so there's, the, the debate has shifted somewhat to whether we need to revisit uh, the federal government's ambitious immigration targets. And here's where there's, you know, there's some risk because Canada is going to need immigration moving forward. We're going to maintain productivity levels. We're going to maintain uh, a tax base that's able to care for, to cover the cost of an aging population. We're definitely going to need to grow our population. But in the short term, if we're growing too fast, there are some costs and there are some pressures with that. 
So how do we find a balance here? What do we need to do to make sure that we're better equipped to handle, uh, to accommodate a growing population? There's a really interesting piece this week in the Globe and Mail on, on exactly those questions on how more immigration will make Canada wealthier. We just need to do it right. Uh, joining us on the line to talk more about it is the author of that piece. Uh, Libio DiMatteo is a professor of economics at Lakehead University. Uh, professor DiMatteo, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, good afternoon, Rob. Pleasure to be here. Uh, when you look at the debate around affordability or inflation or housing costs in, in particular, what's your view, first of all, on, on how relevant immigration is in all of that? Well, it is a factor, uh, but more minor than you might think, because the cost of housing, of course, has been an issue for, you know, almost a decade now. Uh, part of the reason housing costs as much as it does is interest rates were so low for so long, uh, mm -hmm. which basically helped fuel demand. Um, there's also issues in terms of <clears throat> uh, subdividing land and building, and there has not been a lot of building. We tended to build more houses in the 1970s than, than we were building uh, five years ago. Yeah. So we haven't kept up. Um, a lot of uh, apartment and rental units uh, are not coming online or weren't coming online over the last 20 years. And this has been a long-term process. I mean, in 30 years of not of slowing down your, your housing construction, uh, has basically all come home to roost. And now what's happened, of course, what's been added to the mix is there's been an increase in immigration. And that, that's that been, you know, a factor, but it kind of depends on where you are. Uh, in many places, uh, even without immigration, housing would still be in shortage and prices would still be high. I mean, family size in Canada has continued to decline for 50 years. And so population is growing, family, average family size is declining in terms of number of people per housing unit. And so naturally, again, that is going to fuel uh, demand for housing. So I, I guess the, the really crux of the issue at the moment is that um, you do need immigration. I mean, our population is aging. Uh, you do need uh, an influx into the labor force. I mean, our, our, our birth rate is very low, so we cannot reproduce naturally uh, enough people to basically fill employment and positions. So the immigration is going to be necessary, but it's come at a time when the price was already high. And so you have three levels of government, and in a sense, they're, they're, they're not working very well together. Right. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, certainly on the housing issue, I mean, if nothing else, uh, you know, it, it, it can be a potential barrier for those who are coming to the country, you know, to, to have to face those same kinds of affordability challenges. So that sort of speaks to this broader issue of, you know, how well positioned we are to uh, accommodate newcomers into society, into the workforce. And one of the issues you raise in your piece, and it almost seems paradoxical in a way, that we need immigration to, to help raise our level of productivity, but it's almost like we need to first raise our level of productivity to better uh, accommodate uh, immigration? Well, yeah, there has to be, um, uh, I mean, increasing the supply of labor boosts total output, but you need total output to rise at a faster rate than your population growth for per capita income to rise. And the way you do that is you have to be more productive. We've mm -hmm. always had productivity issues in Canada. Right. Our productivity tends to lag the U.S. And the way you boost productivity is you need, well, first, investment in uh, plant, machinery, equipment, factory, capital stock to, to go with the labor. And we've lagged on that also in the last 10 to 15 years. But then you also need an investment in infrastructure to accommodate larger populations and, and people working, whether it's, you know, transportation infrastructure, health, 
education, etc. So, I, I mean, the, the real crux of the problem is the federal government basically has decided to solve the labor shortage issue and population issue by letting more uh, immigrants in. Mm-hmm. However, health and education is provided by the provinces, and housing uh, is essentially, you know, the zoning of land and sort of facilitating building is in the purview of municipalities. Right. So you've got three levels of government, basically, that are not really playing well together in terms of how do you solve this issue. I mean, you do need more housing stock. Uh, the federal government has finally moved a bit uh, by lowering the GST on new rental bills. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, all three levels of government uh, are partly to blame for the cost of housing also, because something like 25 to 30 percent of the cost of a, of a new bill build some type of tax or regulatory cost or transfer tax of one type or another. So, I mean, the municipalities have land transfer taxes to, you know, to raise revenue. The provinces have brought in taxes on, on housing, etc. And, of course, the GST was on housing also, and new housing right. and the, the building materials, etc. So, I, I mean, on the one hand, you can argue that all these factors have come together. So now they basically have to work to how do you boost the supply side? Well, and that's a challenge right now. I mean, you know, with with interest rates where they are, a slowing economy, how how do we go about, you know, boosting productivity and spurring investment? Well, I mean, on the you know, it depends what you're trying to do. I mean, various types of tax incentives can work for boosting investment in the business sector. Uh, That certainly can work. Uh, On the housing front, uh, basically, most municipalities really are creatures of the provinces, so provinces are going to basically have to sort of get in there and w- find ways for municipalities to basically cut a lot of the red tape that seems to delay and slow down uh, the building of housing. And there's going to have to be more density housing, but it's not the kind of density housing you might think. I mean, there has been a lot of density housing going up. Uh, but it's basically condos with one bedroom, which are, aren't, aren't exactly what you would say family-friendly types of residences. Uh, you're basically looking at it in a lot of municipalities uh, along sort of major urban areas where there's sort of low-rise development. Uh, you need four- to six-story buildings where the bottom floor might be some type of retail or commercial and the top four- to six floors, you know, three-bedroom apartments, and you sort of build them in almost like uh, block or courtyard type arrangements. I mean, if you've ever been to Europe, there's just some amazing housing in places like Barcelona or even Stockholm, where, the, you know, the, a lot of the residential areas adjacent to downtowns are these four-to-six-story building, uh, four buildings. Uh, there's sort of shops at the bottom. Upstairs, there's like three-bedroom flats. Like These are large, fairly spacious units, and they're built around like a courtyard. So they're, they're like, it's almost like a park in the middle of each, each block. So, you know, you can get away from the noise of traffic and there's park settings. Basically, it's sort of uh, affordable rental housing and uh, governments, in a sense. I mean, you know, our federal government would like to spend an awful lot of money. One of the things they could have spent it on was more on housing, and they're only coming to that lately. Right. I mean, you know, there's other health care, you know, other infrastructure like health care mm-hmm. or schools. Yeah. And, and eventually, yeah. uh, uh, you know, once we have a broader tax base, that will help pay for all of this. But in the meantime, there is that immediate pressure when the yeah. population grows. We, we need schools. We need hospitals. Yeah. And you cannot build those on the turn of a dime. So we yeah. are in for, you know, a patch. Of, you know, the, the quicker decisions are made and, and the work begins, uh, the faster most of this will be resolved. 
uh, but you're probably looking at another year or two of you know supply shortages and inflationary pressure and issues with housing and, and access to health care. Yeah. The end of the day, though, and the point you're making in your piece is that, you know, we need immigration. The long-term benefits, as you say, considerably outweigh the transition costs. Because, look, if, if we only see the latter side of that and if there's there's frustration at how this is all going, I mean, it does risk. I think there is more or less a political consensus in Canada that immigration is a positive. But if that starts to erode, that could have some long-term consequences. How do we make sure that, you know, we, we are doing this right? Well, the governments have to play a leadership role, and they have to basically do more than just talk. They actually have to provide the housing investment uh, support, uh, for example. They need to be recruiting doctors. There's uh, a lot of foreign-trained doctors in Canada, for example. They're not practicing because they, there's very onerous licensing uh, processes that take a long time. Mm-hmm. There's also a lot of Canadians who are trained as doctors abroad because they weren't able to uh, train in Canada, and there's also roadblocks to them coming back. There's plenty of physicians uh, who are willing to practice and are, are well-trained, but the, you know, provincial governments and uh, physician licensing agencies basically have to help that process out. Um, there's more doctors than we've ever had, but at the same time we have these licensing restrictions, and even within the medical profession there is more of an emphasis on work-life balance now. So even though we have more physicians, they do tend to be seeing fewer patients. So, I mean, it's it's more complicated than simply there's just too many people. Right. Uh, the physicians are also seeing fewer patients, and, I mean, who can blame them, uh, given uh, what most of physicians and other healthcare workers had to go through during the pandemic. We'll leave it there for now. Your piece is up at uh, theglobeandmail.com. Professor DiMatteo, thanks again for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Rob. Have a great day. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.